You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am super excited to be joined today by Dr. Frida Outlaw. Uh, Dr. Outlaw received her baccalaureate in nursing from Berea College, master's in psychiatric nursing from Boston College, her PhD from the Catholic University of America, and her postdoctoral study in psychosocial oncology at the University of Pennsylvania. She has over 50 years of experience as a clinician, researcher, educator, and policymaker in public mental health. She is currently the executive program consultant for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. And her previous roles include the director of the Meharry Youth Health and Center, a healthcare delivery system for adolescents with a special focus on LGBT youth, the Assistant Commissioner, Division of Special Populations, Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, and faculty at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Dr. Outlaw has written in the areas of cultural diversity, management of aggression, seclusion and restraints, the role of religion and spirituality, uh, the use of geriatric depression scale with the older African-Americans, Black women and depression, children's mental health, quality of life of African-American women caregivers, and the mental health needs of minority transgender youth and children, to name a few. Uh, She was a co-author of the book Policy and Politics in Nursing and Healthcare, 7th edition, which was recognized with a Book of the Year Award in 2015 by the American Nurses Association. Dr. Outlaw is also a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. Uh, Dr. Outlaw's full bio and associated links will be available on the RN Mentor podcast website. Welcome to the show, Dr. Outlaw. Thank you so much for that great um, introduction. Thank you. Uh, So I'm very excited to have you uh, on the show. Uh, I had the pleasure of hearing you speak at the uh, uh, at the ambulatory care conference. And then I again had the pleasure of uh, working with you at the minority fellowship program just a few months ago. I'm so glad you accepted the invitation to be on the show Uh, and um, uh, I'm I I I'm just gonna go ahead and start because I you have such a rich uh, career. I'm just gonna start with my first question with all my guests is how did you get started in the world of nursing? Well, um, I I've been thinking a lot about that, and I if you believe in transgenerational imprinting, which I do, because we teach that about 
trauma and, and many other things that are not traumatic. There are some good things that are transmitted across generations. I was born at Providence Hospital in Chicago. And I really think that imprinted me. And for people who don't know, Providence, Providence Hospital was the first owned African-American hospital in the United States. It was um, started in 1891 by Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. And he did that because there were many, there were most public hospitals and even most, most private hospitals and most public hospitals, which are supposed to serve the public, right? Did not serve African-Americans. So I was born there by circumstances. My mother had gone to Chicago to help my father's mother who was sick when she was pregnant. And my parents lived in Kentucky. So theoretically I was supposed to be born in, in Kentucky. But my mother went to Chicago to help my grandmother and stayed for a while. And that's where I was born. Wow. So I believe that I was imprinted by those doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers that were doing marvelous work to serve the community. So that I always claim that. I believe <laughs> that spiritually. I claim that. And they were doing what we call end in health disparities way back then because they were treating people who otherwise would not have been treated. So that's my first claim. My second claim is one that is really clear for everyone who knows me. It was my mother's vision for me to be a nurse. I am her first daughter. She has two daughters. I am her first daughter. And I was there about five and a half years before my sister came along and I had both the temperament and that parental connection to want to, I guess, please my mother uh, because I thought she was just wonderful. And she always talked about me being a nurse because she wanted to be a nurse. And somehow that didn't happen for her for a lot of reasons. So I used to get uniforms and capes and hats and bags and all of that kind of thing. So I have to say that. And then I had a personal experience. When I was about four and a half, maybe, yes, somewhere between four and five, I got rheumatic fever mm. and I had to be in the hospital. Now, let me give you a little context. We lived in what is called now a planned city. It was, a, my father was a coal miner. Most people don't know there are black men who really held up the coal mining industry when it would not have had workers because workers were on strike or whatever. And they went down South and they got men, black men to work in the coal mines. And my father happened to be fortunate enough, if you can call it being fortunate to go underground in the morning, come out at night, never see the day. But the, the company was owned by US Steel and they had good pay, good benefits and they planned the town meaning they built the housing, they built the health care. So we had socialized medicine before people were talking about it. Everybody had the doctor, you went to the doctor, you didn't have to pay, that kind of thing. So U.S. Steel um, had the Sisters of Notre Dame, which was a Catholic order, to come and run the hospital. So I was in that hospital for many months. Now they didn't have, back then, they didn't have children's units and all that kind of stuff. I was just in a room by myself in a little, um, cat, little um, 
baby bed that was um, cast iron, uh, not cast iron, but it was metal. And it had railing, so I couldn't get in, I couldn't get out. I depended on those nuns and they took really good care of me. And they were kind and they gave me ice cream and you know, they just spent time with me. So then I thought I wanted to be a nun and a nurse. And it took me a little while, and that's a whole nother story, to know that I <laughs> didn't want to be a nun. Plus, I didn't, we, I didn't know anything about Catholicism, but um, we were Methodists. And so I was imprinted, I think, by those nuns and what they did and how they took care of me. So that was my second, I think, imprinting. And then my third one was I was fortunate enough <clears throat> In my hometown, there were two black nurses. Now, let me set the context for that. When I went to nursing school, there were less than 1% of the nurses in the United States were women of color of African descent. So essentially I had, a that was a great deal. <laughs> I had two nurses, so I was very fortunate. And you know that thing about, if you see it, you can be it. So I know a lot of times people say, people, minority nurses say, well, you know, there were no nurses to see. Well, I saw two, Miss Dorothy Mara, I can name them, and Ms. <laughs> May Hammonds. Ms. May Hammonds lived across the street from me. Miss Dorothy Mara and her, her daughter and I were very good friends. I didn't know as much about Miss May Hammond, except she was a leader, a head nurse at the local hospital that came much later than the, the hospital I was in. It's subsequently closed and we had a regional hospital, but she was a leader there. But Ms. Dorothy Mara had gone to Tuskegee University, which is an HBCU. Um, and I just was all fascinated by her. So I saw it right away. So I believed that I could do it. So that was my first journey into nursing. And then from, I guess, from first grade on through in my head was, I was going to be a nurse and every now and then it'd pop up that I, maybe I was gonna be an architect. And my mother would say, have you ever seen any black architects? And I would say, I guess you couldn't see it, you couldn't be it. I was like, no. And then I'd say, well, maybe I'll be a doctor. And I go back and forth with that because I certainly, I went to the Lynch Colored School from grade one to grade 11. Now, a lot of times people react when I say I went to the Lynch Colored School, but it was a fabulous place. All of our teachers were people of color. They were very committed. Ms. Sweat was the first grade teacher, was my aunt. Ms. Mabel Harris, the second grade teacher, was so committed. She taught us things like, I don't know if you've heard, Ollie, the um, controversy about lift every voice and sing the Negro National Anthem. Well, I learned that in the second grade, all four verses. And if you didn't sing it right, Miss Mabel Harris would, she'd come and she'd say, honey. And if you didn't get the word right, she'd give you a little pinch and make you get it. <laughs> but what's significant, let me tell you what's significant, the reason I'm making a case for that, because I'm creating a context. Those teachers taught me, they, I developed self-worth, self-confidence, and I knew I could do what I wanted to do 
if I mapped it out and I worked at it. There was no, there was no ambiguity about that because they taught us and they taught us how to be good citizens and how to deal with, in some ways, the racism that we were going to confront. For instance, Ms. Mabel Harris, our second grade teacher, you had to learn in Kentucky then in the school curriculum, every student, black, white, green, or purple, had to learn as part of their school civics work, the Kentucky song, the state song. Well, there's a line in the state song, to summer, the darkies are gay. Miss Mabel Harrison, no, we're not, that's not. So she changed the words. She, she had to teach the song. Right. She changed the words. She said, to summer, the comrades are gay. So we always thought of ourselves as soldiers, the comrades. And right. so that's how, you know, you learn to brace yourself against those things that are going to come. So when we integrated schools and they didn't take any teachers, any support staff, we were black kids up there, band together to try to make it in a place that we never stood in before, never had been there, Nobody oriented us to the school. We had to find our way. We made our way. And I have scars to this day about that though, because had I stayed at Lynch College School, I would have been the valedictorian. Mm. And Bill Turner or Mary Lynn Williams would have been the salutatorian. But we had to say, my grades didn't waver when I got up there, but we were not allowed to, to have any of that. But the thing that has pierced my heart to this day, my children can't get over it. They would not allow me to be in the National Honor Society, although I had the credentials. Wow. They, they said we hadn't been there enough semesters. And so when my first son got in the National Honor Society, I made a big deal out of it. He was like, Mom, what? You know, it's no big deal. And I was like, yes, it's a big deal because you have to know what this means. So, but I say that, but not. But I cannot say I did not have some allies. So I can name, when I went to college, Berea College, there were no Black professors there. There were no Black professors in the School of Nursing. But I had an ally in the School of Nursing, Ms. Martha Pride, that I would not have been able to graduate from Berea College had not Ms. Pride been my ally. And I'll tell you why. It had nothing to do with grades. It had to do with we did public health in the community. The community was in Hyden, Kentucky, which was a, a number of miles from the college. And it's famous because it's where Frontier Nursing Service, now Frontier Nursing University, but Frontier Nursing Service was where Mary Breckenridge came from England to be a midwife in those hills of Kentucky because they had so much infant mortality and so forth, maternal death. And so we practiced out there in our public health and we had to live out there. But in order to live out there and do your public health work, you had to drive. I did not know how to drive because my parents got a car in 1959 and only my mother was allowed to drive it. And they just didn't teach me how to drive. So when I got to my senior year, the dean brought me in. I was to go on my public health rotation 
my last semester. The dean brought me in and she said, where's your driver's license? I said, I don't have one. She brought me in the beginning of school, thank God. And she said, well, if you don't have it by second semester, you will not be able to finish here. You will have to go home. So Ms. Martha Pride, God bless her. She took me and she taught me how to drive on her car. And I had an accident in her car. I hit a gas pump. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it took me two times to pass, but I passed. And therefore I was able to progress. So she was an angel to me. She was an ally. And she made me practice even when I didn't want to. And then there's Barbara Lowry when I was at Penn. Or who helped. I wouldn't have finished my dissertation had it not been for Barbara Lowry. And I was not a student at Penn. I was a student at Catholic, the Catholic University of America. But Barbara Lowry was doing the research I wanted to do. I read it. I went over and I asked her. We negotiated. She helped me. She became part of my committee and then supported me after to say, yes, you need to do a postdoc. You need to learn more about. So I'm saying that to say there were allies along the way, even when I did not have anybody of color who after the 11th grade, who was there to understand some of the issues that, other, that, that sometimes it's hard for people who have not lived your experience to understand. I had Lois Evans, who has been a champion and was the person who really champed Lois Evans and Angela McBride, who both championed my membership into the academy. And of course, Margaret Cretronio, who taught me how to, for I guess maybe over 10 years, I was the director of the graduate, the psych mental health graduate program at Penn. I never would have had that opportunity had not Margaret um, had been the director and she taught me how to do it and provided me that opportunity. So I want to say it's not one-sided, but there are ways in which when, when certain kinds of things happen, let me tell you, can I tell you just one experience, I've written about this, so it's documented, it's printed. When I was at Berea, there were three women of color, black women in my nursing class, two of, two of whom were sophomores in college for freshmen in nursing, meaning they went into nursing in their sophomore year, they got into the nursing program. I was the only freshman nurse. So we had a teacher who brought us in one day and said something to the effect that she had never seen successful, anybody successful that was black as a student or as, as a faculty member. As when she was a student and when she's been a, a faculty member, she, that, that the, it was really uh, testy about whether black people could be successful in nursing. And we would have to be like three musketeers and we would have to do this and we would have to do that. And we were mortified. We just were mortified, um, but we were not deterred because we all three graduated. Two of us are in the academy and one of, and the other person has had a stellar career in um, at, both at the VA and in maternal child health. 
So proved her wrong, but you know, we had to, that's kind of some of what you had to deal with. But I never felt comfortable to tell Miss Martha Pratt, who was an angel to me, or Miss Betty Williams, who was another wonderful faculty member at Berea. I never felt comfortable to share that with them. I didn't talk about it for a long time until I was much an adult about how that made me feel and how, I guess it helped me be determined in some ways, but it really made me very anxious in some other ways. So anyway, so that's my journey. Now my mother's vision keeps on because when I graduated from college, I went to New York City because that was my dream. But I had a fellowship to go to back to graduate school. And that's, I I sort of thought I'd stay in New York though and, you know, have a good time for a while. My mother was like, no, you're going to go on to graduate school because that money's not going to always be there. And she was right. That money did dry, part of it dried up when I was in my second year. Because back in those days, when you went into certain master's programs, they were two years, really, I guess one to eight semesters because she had the summer off. And the idea was to practice in the summer and but two, two years of academic work. So I went to graduate school and um, my life changed because I went thinking I was gonna do one thing And I decided to, at that time, the options in your master's program were education or the new clinical specialist. Mm -hmm. And so I chose the clinical specialist track, which was in sight then. There was some pharmacology, but it was mostly developing therapists. So we really learned how to be therapists. The beginning there, and then you go on in the training. So I had two years there, got married, met somebody, went there, engaged to somebody, didn't marry that somebody, but married somebody else. And then came to Nashville with my husband because he always wanted to come back South and do work in the South. And then the journey worked at Vanderbilt, worked at Meharry, but I wanted to, it was always in my head to do doctoral study. Again, my mother's saying, you should go as far as you can go and get as many credentials as you can get, especially since you're a young black woman. It, the, that way, the more credentials, the more likely you will be able to forge your own way. And she said, I know this from personal experience because my mother was very bright. She was the valedictorian of her class. But she took another path. She didn't, well, for a lot of reasons. She ended up being what we call first assist. I don't know. She was first assist in the OR. So she finally got credentialed. But she, in the beginning, she could only practice in that Catholic hospital because that's where she got trained because her credential didn't hold anywhere else. So mm-hmm. from her lived, but then she went on and got credentialed. But her lived experience guided me. So I always credit my mother with this part of how I forged my path in nursing because I never would have 
And I have to tell you, Ali, I went from undergraduate. I went to undergraduate school when I was barely 17. So when I got, when it used to be the prevailing wisdom was when you graduated, you worked at least a year and then you went to graduate school. Well, I went to graduate school without working a year, which was unheard of then. I don't know how. See, I think divine intervention again, because actually that was really kind of against the rule. And I also had not taken my state boards, which I don't, I mean, I, see, I always say there was something going on there because I wanted to take my state boards in New York City. And at New York City at the time, you had to have your fingerprints. And my fingerprints got in two days late. They wouldn't let me take them. Oh. So I couldn't take them in July, take them that fall. Had I not passed, I was already in graduate school. I would not been able to, you know, progress because I wouldn't have been a registered nurse. But isn't that, I mean, I think about that now and I'm like, wow, you know, what was going on there? So I got out and then when we moved here, the handwriting was, when I moved to Nashville, there were very few nurses here, black or white, who had master's degrees. And I had one. So I got a lot of opportunities, but I wanted to do my doctorate, but I went to Peabody to talk to them. I was going to get it in clinical psych, but they wanted me to go back and do a master's in psych and then into the doctoral program. I wasn't willing to do that. So when my husband got an opportunity to move back up to um, first to Baltimore, and then to Philadelphia, when we moved, I thought the dean at Boston College at the time I was a student said to us in our first assembly, if you ever think about doctoral study, you need to go to the Catholic University of America. And that stayed in my head. But at the time, now I'm gonna date myself because everybody's gonna say, what? At the time there were, I believe three schools that had programs in nursing doctorate, nursing doctorates, Boston University, the Catholic University of America, and UCSF. Even Penn didn't have their program up and going then. It came maybe a year later. So I went to Catholic and that's, you know, and that's where I did my doctoral study. Wow, amazing story. Yes. Amazing story. Uh, it's it's uh as I'm as you're 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 dropping some names I'm like I, I need to start thinking back as to who were some of the people that were that were in my uh, that were in my program and I and I, I haven't been out of the out of the program that long but uh, it's it's amazing how certain individuals really play key whether they realize it or not they key. they're 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 key to to how our uh, our profession, our professional careers develop. Uh, so it's amazing. I know I picked my my um, university that I did my PhD work in um, based on some of the people that had graduated that I knew that had graduated from there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one of the key elements for me to uh, go to. Uh, I went to University of San Diego. Um, mm -hmm. So I drove. Uh, their program is once a week in person, and I knew I needed a be in person. I drove there once a week uh, for the every week for three years. 
Uh, I live in LA, so two hours and two hours back every single every single Thursday uh, for three years. Um, so yeah, but it's a, but I knew I wanted to go there. So uh, so it's it's really great that uh, that those seeds are planted so early on uh, that guide us through the process. Right, and the people get in your path that if you let them come in, that really direct your path. Because Barbara Lowry said to me, um, she was an awesome person in terms of getting things done. And she said to me at the end, what do you intend to do? I said, well, I want to teach, but I want to teach and I want to teach at a place that's close to my house so I can go back and forth, take care of my children and blah, blah, blah. But I want to do research. She said, well, if you want to do research, you're going to have to do a postdoc. And I said, mm, I had two babies and a kid, almost a teenager. And I was like, and we were not, you know, my husband was a faculty member. He made a decent salary, but it meant going from, I was in the government. I was the assistant chief for psychiatry and the associate for education. So I was like a GS 13, 14, making oh. a lot of money back then. Yeah. And I went from that to $17,000. That's what the postdoc paid. Wow. And we had to figure it out and, you know, how to, how to make that work. And it was really hard. But again, my mother gave me a little money. Mm. She said, this is your inheritance. You won't get anything <laughs> else. But this will help you. And it wasn't a whole lot of money. Don't get twisted. It wasn't a whole lot. But it helped us. And, you know, we just hunkered down and made it work. But it was difficult. Yeah. Uh, but I and did. That, hmm? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I mean, that that pay difference, it really does. I, I will say it's sometimes a barrier for us to get more postdoctoral, PhD prepared uh, just nurse scientists out there. I know that was a barrier for me. Uh, I was the primary breadwinner for the household. I can't take it. I went from service to academia, which was a significant pay cut. I'm like, I can't take another pay cut uh, where I am. So, so yeah, it's, 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 um, I wish we had a better solution to those postdoctoral positions. Well, I think that's something we're going to have to talk about more. When I was in my postdoc, there were two other black women. We just talk about it a lot because the, a lot of the women who were in the postdoc with us were women of European descent and they had means. They had husbands who were doctors and lawyers. They, they, were, they, were, they had people who made money, business people made it. And um, my husband was an academic. Some women were single women. You know, we didn't have any money to spend. Not a lot of money, as you say. So we said the other things that people don't think about, childcare. I didn't have a nanny. I didn't have a housekeeper. I had three children. Let's see, they were like four, two, and 12 or 13, or something like that. So I didn't have anybody. Um, to, but my husband, and he was trying to get tenure at a highly scholarly uni college, university, you know, a lot of pressure. Okay. So it was very difficult. And we finally got a little bit of help. 
but the idea that it was hard. And, you know, when everybody else had time to write, I was trying to carve out some time to write, but I also was trying to carve out some time to work a couple of extra hours to make some money so that I would have money to travel to school or, you know, to and buy books or whatever I needed to do. Right. So yeah. it was it was difficult. So I think that we're going to have to look at programs if we want scholars of color. And, and I'll talk when we go with the MFP program. The MFP program is that for preparing um, scholars at the master's and the doctoral levels. And when and so we get them started and we get them connected and we support them financially as well as with other supports, personal. How do you go through that? Sometimes you just listen and you can understand the struggles that right. people are going through and you can support them and you can get them mentors that can help them work through some of that. So the MFP provides that. And we've got to think now further about, so once they're out, the wonderful thing about the MFP is there are people now, we're getting a cadre of people that did not exist when I came out because I was in that first iteration of the MFP. Right. But we have people that can then hook up with, hook people up with postdoctoral study and that kind of thing. I'm thinking of Dr. John Lowe now who has done, a, you know, has provided postdoctoral service, a postdoctoral experiences for students. We're having other people who come out who will be able to do that. So that's one way. Right. But we have to look at it, I think, nationally too, to say what kind of programs are going to exist for um, postdoctoral studies for people like you, who, who you are immensely talented in all kinds of ways. How can you bring all those talents together to do something that's creative and innovative and different? Thank you. Well, th thank you for that. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really do agree with you. And I want to talk more about the MFP program with you. Uh, but going back to the postdocs, it's, it's been like sort of this, you know, I've heard it from other faculty when I was in my PhD program that if you want to get anywhere with research or anything like that, you have to do a postdoc. And now I think even with, with uh, so many programs are set up, that you have to be on site with faculty to do whatever it is you're going to do. And COVID has kind of proven a lot of those theories wrong that because we've managed to do so much virtually, uh, like, you know, there's no reason for, for somebody like myself who is, I can't move out of the area I'm in. This is where my support system is. This is where my wife and kids are, where my kids go to school, all that stuff. So how do we, I think we really need to rethink what, a, what the postdoc in nursing uh, looks like to remove those barriers of having to physically relocate or those pay differences that are so, that are significantly in many postdoc programs are significantly lower than what the cost of living and what people really need to get paid 
in order to survive. Um, so I think some of those barriers would, I think from a professional perspective, would really, really need to rethink postdocs in the world of nursing. I think you're right. And I think if there is any positive to come out of COVID, I think we're learning different ways to do different things. Mm -hmm. I also think the ones of us who went, have come before, you know, have, have talked about that a little bit. So the Academy of Nursing did a monograph when I was a postdoc and all of us of postdocs of color wrote things about the postdoctoral experience. Mm. I wrote about having a mentor when, you, when the mentor is different than you racially and ethnically right. and, and what, what, what works and what doesn't work. And there were all kinds of things. I think the key is going to be looking at not so much relocate. Now that we have such big databases and things like that, I think the key might be when we start to think about innovation, the key may be who's doing something like you. Like you have to, like, you know, I think your gift of, of, of doing the, the sketches that you do and capturing the themes, it's almost like you're a psych nurse. You know how to capture those things. <laughs> I've been amazed at that. And then the other work you're doing, or if I'm doing work in ACES and somebody in California, what's the database, what's the connection and how do we use technology to be together to do that? Absolutely. I think that's coming. And I think what we're gonna have to do is know who's doing what. And, and part of that is publications and just you know looking to see who's doing what kind of work in the area that you're interested in. But it will change and it may open up opportunity yeah. for people. Yeah, I hope so. I, ho I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope we do start seeing some changes like that because I mean, just from my own perspective, having the opportunity to do this podcast, I've the things that I've learned about some of the people that I've, you know, most most of most of the individuals, I ha I just know them through some of the work that they've done, but I don't know them personally until we meet for the podcast and the work that they're doing. Like I would have never known some of the uh, the depth of work of my guests without actually having that conversation. So. But I think from a nursing perspective, we're sort of isolated. Uh, yes. Like universities are very isolated and we're not great at sharing unless right. we end up at a conference somewhere or we end up in a conversation somewhere. Uh, right. So I think it's important that we, we, we are uh, more fluid uh, and reaching in with reaching out to each other or knowing what other people are working on. Because um, some of them, my veterans, like the work that I'm doing with, with, with like veterans research and advocacy, uh, it's hard to find who else in nursing is doing that uh, sometimes. I mean, you can look through literature and stuff like that, but like who's, and sometimes publications are just like a one pub publication that individual may not go on to do their entire portfolio based off of like a, like a veteran population. So sometimes those uh, collaborations are hard to find. So I think yeah, I agree with from a nursing perspective, we need to be a little more fluid, <clears throat> excuse me. From, from that perspective. Right. Now, I do want to talk about the Minority Fellowship Program because I had never heard of it till, till I met you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had never heard of it. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about the 
uh, minority fellowship program, why it was started and what it's doing now. Cause I found it, I found the whole experience of, and thank you for the invitation. I had a chance to kind of be a fly on the wall while you guys had your uh, summer intensive. Uh, and uh, I, I learned so much uh, uh, and, and uh, it was amazing. So if you can share with us uh, what the program was, is about. I think you got the right person in this regard. I'm the historian because I've almost been there since the beginning. Oh my goodness, when you think about it. Um, but I, I, in some ways I take great pride in that. Um, Cause you know, you have to make meaning out of getting old. So I take great pride in, we've been around now going into 46 years. I think it was right, 1974 or thereabout when the Minority Fellowship Program started. And I can tell you the whole history actually there were a group of sociologists who were looking at the literature on about mental health and outcomes for people of color of African descent at that time. They were black sociologists and they were looking at the poor outcomes, the poor treatment and all of this. And they went to the federal government and said, look at here, this has got to happen. So they went to NI, National Institute of uh, Mental Health. Um, and they talked about it and it was decided, they funded a few grants and then they decided they really needed to fund people who were doing the, if you will, clinical work. And so the four core um, groups that they funded after the sociologists, like, like kind of the next year. And there was a nurse, uh, Dr. Mary Stark Harper, who has, has been legendary in, in some circles, in government circles across nursing and across nursing about her advocacy work, her intelligence and, and her push to get this thing started um, across disciplines. So the four core disciplines were of course psychiatry, psychiatric nursing, psychiatric social work and psychology. They were the four, and, and these four core groups then got, fun, got funding, and they had to be housed in, a, an, um, in, an organiza in an established organization. And of course, the Minority Fellowship Program was housed at the American Nurses Association. And that's how we got there, and psychology went into you know, psychology and so forth and so on. And the first group, out of that first group, there were some real stars. I think one of the ones that people will resonate, many people will know the name Ora Strickland. Ora Strickland, do you, I mean, I don't know if you've interviewed her, but she would be a wonderful person to interview. She, I think, was probably one of the youngest people to get a PhD in psychiatry. In, in nursing research and went on to do some of the first nursing text on measurement and evaluation and research in nursing. Very young. I think Oral might've been, she, she might not have been 25 mm. um, yet. Just, just brilliant, beautiful, brilliant, very good sense of presence of self. And she's done wonderful things and she is now the dean at um 
one of the universities in Florida and it's escaping me, but she is a very successful Dean at a university in Florida and just has been a great presence in nursing and a great representative out of the Minority Fellowship Program. And we have other stars that have come along um, out of the program. It's, it's sort of like we are a hidden jewel. You know how you have a jewel, but it's hidden. And I'm not certain why, because, um, but I think when it was at NIMH, you know, it's, get, it's hard at NIMH because their mission, and the mission was researchers and that's what they were producing for a long time. And so I don't think it got the kind of exposure that it might've gotten other, because they're most, a lot of people coming out of NIMH are bench scientists. And we do, a lot of our work is programmatic, it's research, but it's community-based, it's engagement, it's social justice, it's um, that kind of research. It's not high, hardcore bent science, right. if you will. It's more social science, combined sometimes with some bench science. But so at first it was research and then the program shifted um, to SAMHSA because when we started SAMHSA didn't even exist. And when it sam shifted to SAMHSA, of course the focus on SAMHSA is still, it's, it's really on programmatic changing systems and providing research-based, evidence-based practice and improving health disparities, creating health equity and that kind of thing. So the, the program is that's what we're doing by creating a cadre of minority nurses um, that um, can do that research, can do that quality improvement. And now in, in that regard, and now we have a master's program that was started um, from President Obama. Now is the time when Sandy Hook took place they talked about having more clinicians at the entry level to work with people who are having traumas, who have, you know, had um, underrepresented in terms of care that's specific to them that can get better outcomes and that kind of thing. So we have created a cadre of scientists and clinicians, research scientists, uh, quality improvement scientists and policy and policy makers and educators that are doing just that in the world of mental health and in the world of integrated health. So we are very, very proud of the success. And the program is designed to provide funding, as I said, but also mentoring, really formal mentoring to help, to help the fellows develop their plans of career trajectories, how they're gonna get there, how they're gonna make the step, what happens if it doesn't work. These mentors do all of their, this to help them work through what they need to do to meet their goals, to be 
successful providers for the underserved and unserved minority populations that they represent. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and I you know, like I said, I thank you for the invitation and, and me being, uh, you know, present during your summer intensive, but, um, and your guests were absolutely amazing. And so such an impressive, uh, impressive uh, group of fellows that you have in the program. How are the fellows uh, selected uh, to be in the program? Um, I'm sure there's an application process, but how do other universities promote your program within, because there's a lot of psych programs out there. Uh, and, and just from what I hear and what I've seen, uh, you guys do amazing work. How, do, how does somebody who's listening to this podcast, how do they apply and what are you looking for specifically? Okay, so... Just to set the context again, because you know I'm a psych nurse to set the context. Our program is a funding program and a support program for minorities. We accept students from any accredited psychiatric mental health nursing program. Um, so we, you know, and we do a lot of work. Janet Jackson, who is the project director, and Samuel Safarel, who is the uh, program director for the for um, he's the program director for the programs. Um, he used to be program director for the mass for the for the child, we had the child, adolescent and youth in transition program. And now it's the, just the master's program across the lifespan because we, we broaden the program to meet what psychiatric mental health nursing programs do. They have programs that go across the lifespan. And it used to be in the old days when I was in the program, you selected whether you wanted to do adult, child and families or geriatrics, and now they do it across the lifespan. So they do a yeoman's job in recruiting and promoting the program. They go to organizational meetings, they go to schools, we, we reach out to schools. We do a lot of promoting the program and educating universities that have site programs about our funding opportunity. And we do a lot of, now we're doing a lot of, in this age of social media, we are doing a lot of social media, like we have all the platforms, we have a wonderful website, we're always, I don't lead that. They, um, Samuel and we and we have a new person, Andreas Casillas and Sandra Oliver. We're a small team. There's Janet is the project director. Sandra Oliver is uh, does a lot of the um, uh, social media things. Um, Samuel does. He's the program director for the master's program as well as the technological things. And Andreas is our newest person and he's doing a lot of like the podcast work and um, all some other technological interventions to promote the program. So we're small, I say we're small, but mighty. And then I'm the academic consultant. 
So we, we're doing a lot to promote the program and we're really trying to measure now if our little hidden jewel will get uncovered a little bit. And so we're using every opportunity like this one to you know, have people to hear about our program because we, we do promote it, but we will find that people will not know about it. They'll like, oh, but we have found also the people who have promoted us mostly have been the people who have, who have graduated from the program. Yeah. They have been our best ambassadors for getting other people to check us out and to, so then it's very competitive, very competitive. We get a lot of applications. There's some criteria, however, you have to, your focus has to be psychiatric mental health. That includes co-occurring substance abuse. It has to fit the SAMHSA requirements that SAMHSA has for their program because they're for there are our funding. So you have to focus on psychiatric mental health or substance abuse, substance use. You have to be willing to be a full-time student and you know, a citizen and um, in an accredited program. So those are the major categories that you have to. And the the, the application now is online. So theoretically it's easier and people come on and sometimes people come on and they apply and um, then they say, they think about it. And, you know, they, sometimes I think people just kind of look at what's available money-wise and then they start to apply. And then they find that it's not psychiatric mental health that they're really interested in because that really has to be your passion. Your right. And so that's how, so we look at all the applications, everybody that completes an application and there's a first go around that um, Janet and I will do, well, Sam, uh, Samuel and Sandra who sort of manage that, they, they look at some things that are not complete and all that and they do the first iteration. We do the second. If a person says they're not full-time, you know, we look through. And then we have a net, then all the applications that meet the criteria, we have a national advisory committee. And the national advisory committee is appointed by the American Nurses Association Board of Directors. Um, but we, you know, but a lot of the people that applied to, to be on the advisory committee are people who have come through our program. So they know the program. And then we have some who have not and they learn and they become part, really contributing parts of the advisory committee too. So they then have sets, we have the, the application scored by three people. And then they get together and they get their scores. And it's really the people who score the highest, we of course have a set of criteria and who set, you know, who, who score the highest. And it depends on how many applications, because that's fluid. Because you know, when you're doing your doctoral study, you cannot predict how many people are gonna graduate in that year. So it depends on how many openings there are. 
the people who, if we have four openings, the people who score the highest for those four openings get an opportunity, they get a letter and an opportunity to accept the, um, the funding. Yeah, that's amazing. Just, I mean, just a mentoring component of it, of having somebody that you can tap into is so valuable because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think we have enough of, enough of that. And hence, you know, one of the reasons I made this podcast is we just don't have as many mentors out there uh, that I think we need to hear from necessarily. So I think this program is uh, specific to a population in nursing uh, that is, and that's what makes it so valuable is that you have somebody that has kind of walked where you're trying, the path that you're trying to go go on. Uh, so I think it's, uh, I think it's amazing. And, uh, and struggle again, with some of the same struggles as we talk about with yeah. the postdoc. Yeah, but let me, definitely. Can I, do I have a few minutes to talk yeah, about absolutely, the wonderful absolutely. mentoring program? Yes. We take our mentoring program very seriously um, at the, MFP at ANA, we have a formal, we've always had mentoring, but we have formalized the mentoring program. And let me tell you what that means. We formalized it by first creating a manual. We have a manual that's copyrighted and it's in revision because you know, as soon as you write something, you have to revise (laughs) it. But it grounded us, it grounded us. It gave us our marching orders. Now we started that, we rolled that out, the formal program in 2017. And the the mentoring manual was spearheaded by um, a a woman, one of our formal fellows, Dr. Julian Inouye and myself, and we had a mentoring work group and we created the manual and had a, you know, we're nurses, so we had to have a, a sort of a framework and we had a, we have a framework and we have lots of information, even operational definitions. What are we talking about when we talk about a mentor? What's a mentee and, you know, what's the history around that? And then the do's and don'ts, expectations. And then we set out how you do it, how you start it. What is your initial meeting? What do you do in your initial meeting? How do you develop an individual development plan? You look out five years. It doesn't mean it's got to stay that way, but you can be thinking five years and then you can create it or change it as you need to be do it. And it goes from there. So we have that as a, and every, every fellow who comes into the program gets a dedicated mentor. So, and we match it up. This is what we do. We look at our pool of mentors and what their, what their clinical or research is, interests are. And we look at where they live if possible. We look at a number of things, but primarily it's driven by what their research or clinical issues are. And we match that as closely as we can with the fellow. And we can, and, and then we make the assignment. Now, it doesn't mean that if it doesn't work, we have an opt-out, but we haven't had too many opt-outs yet. We've done a very good job. And I go through and do that first go around. 
And then Janet and I talk about it and, you know, and we assign, we talk to the person, the mentor that we want to engage the fellow with a little bit about the fellow. And then we make the assignment and it goes from there. Now we've automated that so that it's easier and it's going to be easier for us to track. We don't, we don't need to know what they're talking about per se, because that's confidential, but we'd like to know how many meetings they've had and have they set the goals, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, that's the accountability that's piece on the yeah, The accountability piece, we want to measure, right. you know, what's working, what's not working. And we use the feedback from the mentees and the mentors about what really worked, what didn't work, how they see it might work better and that kind of thing. We're right in the evaluation process right now where we sent out the surveys to say, you know, but ask them to tell us what worked and what didn't work and that kind of thing. So we're very proud of that program. That's amazing. And that that's a lot of work because a lot of organizations or institutions say they have a mentoring program, mm -hmm. but it sort of ends at the point where they assign you a mentor and that's it. And everybody kind of is supposed to do something, right? So I think that that's the fact that you've operationalized it is, is amazing. It's, it's a lot of work and it's amazing work. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing that. Uh, so uh, I can I can talk to you for hours, by the way. So I think you're you're you have, you're an ama amazing storyteller and, and have a lot of information to share. Um, but I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, anything else you'd like to share with us before we sign off? Well, what what I I've really I'm at the point in my life where it's reflection time about the path and the journey and the whys and the why nots. And I, I think that what I would really like to share with fellows who are young and who are starting out and even those in the middle that really it's, you, you, you really have to appreciate who you are and what your gifts are. And even when they don't feel like their gifts or people are not saying that to you, that, that, that if you reflect and look inward of yourself, you can just hold to that. And that, that what is, I have found also interesting is Hold on to those persons in your life, in and out of your profession, that can support you. One of the gifts in my life is I have a friend that I've had, has been my friend since I was a baby. So she knows my wonderfulness and she knows my warts, all of them. And I can be real with her. And she may not know anything about nursing, but she can say, you know, I think you've been to whatever, or I think you ought to hold to what you, she can help me. As we used to say in the community, read myself. So I think you have to do that. And you have to hold on to what's really your purpose. I, I believe in that. 
Because if you don't, when you get my age and you haven't held on to what your purpose is, you will regret it. Mm. Um, and so you hold on to your purpose and you learn as much as you can learn uh, and be open to that and be open to learning. I say nurses have to learn outside of nursing also. We have to learn outside of nursing because all a lot of what informs nursing really is out is created outside of nursing. Let me give you an example. So I happened to read a book called The Social Construction of Reality, Bergman and Lugman, long time ago, because I was trying to understand diversity and race and um, invidious discrimination and racism in some ways that had more meat on it than just to say white people don't like black people, black people don't like white people. I was trying to understand where's the germination of this. And so social construction of reality helped me to understand how reality is created mm. in the world. And then people buy into it, to what we call, what Bergman and Lugman call, it becomes like a common sense. People don't even, people don't even question because it's sort of the common reality that people accept, but it germinated from somewhere. Like when we talk about implicit bias, people talk about implicit bias like it just fell out of the air. You know, people just are implicitly biased. Well, there is a, there is a reason for that and why implicit bias happens. Because social construction of reality says that people construct things built on on what he, what Bergman and Lugman say becomes what people take as real. And what people take as real is socially constructed um, in, within systems. And that's what we call systemic racism. It's socially constructed, the whiteness has with it such and such a thing. So I'm on a tear about this and I'll just say this and maybe it'll make me write it. You know how people say they are treated like that because of the color of their skin. Now, when you hear that, there's a, a subtle nuance to that, right? That there might be something wrong with the color of my skin. If you think about it in a child's eyes, a child will start to say, if they're brown, what's wrong with the color of my skin? Right. Yeah, so that starts that internal stuff. It it's puts not, the, yeah, I was gonna say so it puts I'm the a, blame on the on the individual. On the individual, uh, and also it says I can't do anything about this brownness. Right. And there's something wrong with this brownness. It is not the brownness. It's what's been socially constructed about what it means to be brown. Right. And it's usually negative, right? And I think um, the woman who, Isabel Wilkinson, in her book, Cast, talks about that in some ways that I think makes sense to the public. So Bergman and Lugman calls it typification. It took me a minute to think. 
they say it becomes a typification. Typification means what is typical, what we believe to be typical about certain people, certain groups, whatever. So I've been trying to figure out how to write about that to make sense to people, to understand the words matter. And you have to be careful about the nuances of that because then you are really constructing socially a reality that people just sort of say, oh, they, it's because of the color of their skin. Well, it's not. It's because of what has been assigned to the color of their skin without any kind of proof that, that is the, the assignment is really, we know the assignment is rooted in something that's other than reality. So with having said that, but getting back to, I, but I think you have to form support groups of people who have the same mission, the same ideas, the same beliefs. Doesn't mean that you all got to walk in lockstep, but you have to have support systems. And some people use religion. I've just been reading on the text today, a lot of nurses talking about how badly they're being treated in their nursing environments. And some people say it's their support groups. Some people say it's their religious beliefs and groups. It is, it may be your Kayatafa sorority, wherever it is, you cannot do this alone is what I'm trying. I took a long way to say, you have to have a support system and you have to lean on those people to hold you up when you're not getting what you need where you know where you work or where you know where you're trying to make a difference you have to have that makes great sense makes great sense um well thank you so much i again i can talk to you for hours uh so i appreciate you being here um and uh and i look and hopefully uh, at some point in my life uh, we'll meet in person i would love to ha yes. have that happen um so with that said uh we have well, been... know that i'm a big fan of yours oh thank I, you i'm thank not you. just saying that i just think your work is phenomenal i just think you're you have talents in a in a lot of ways that some of us don't have talents and you should really i think you are maximizing them and you should continue to maximize them i appreciate it thank you so that means a lot coming from you that really does mean a lot coming from you so thank you so much. Uh, we have been listening to Dr. Frida Outlaw. Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, and I look forward to bringing you more incredible guests on the RN Mentor podcast. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.